0: Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast.
1: If you grew spinach in the ground outside, not in the hoop house, not in the greenhouse, mm. but on the ground outside, you'd have, I don't know what, two weeks of spinach that you could eat. Mm-hmm. And if you ate spinach for two weeks out of the year, no big deal. But now mm. we've listened to a cartoon in the 1960s and 70s about this being a health food, and we're growing it all over the world, and we're, we're freezing it, shipping it. Now we, we, we consider it a, a superfood. And you can eat it every single day of the year. Right. And we've created a problem that was never a problem before. And real, the other, um, you, know, you mentioned almonds. Almond milk has become quite a problem in many parts of the world as well. They, there was just a study that came out, um, I believe it was in Chicago, for the first time ever, children under the age of 10 years old are presenting with kidney stones. And it's happening in families um, that are raising their kids vegan. And kids are drinking the same amount of almond milk as they normally would be drinking from cow's milk and creating again, a situation we've never before seen in our species.
0: Hello, and welcome to the get lean E clean podcast. I'm Brian Grinn, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was five, 10, even 15 years ago, each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week I interviewed author, chef anthropologist and founder of the Eastern shore food lab. Dr. Bill Schimler. We discussed how cooking can revolutionize your health, the importance of fermentation, all about almonds and raw dairy, along with what oils to avoid, what he learned from the tribes, his cornerstones of a healthy diet and much, much more. This was my second time around with Dr. Bill. And I really enjoyed the interview. I hope you do too. And thanks so much for listening. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin, and I'm with Dr. Bill Schindler. Welcome to the show. Thank you so
1: much. Pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you on. And uh, second time around, it was about a year ago, we talked last, and I think you were discussing, uh, you were in the midst of writing up your book, and now it's come to fruition. So uh, congrats on that.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a long time coming. I am super excited.
0: Yeah. And we're definitely going to dive all into that book. And, um, uh, before we get into that, why don't we discuss, I know we did a year ago, but why don't we sort of discuss like your journey into health and, um, you know, sort of ancestral eating and cooking for yourself and things like that. So I know you had some health struggles early on when you were younger.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, uh, I know we talked about this a little bit in the past, but, I had, a, for the majority of my life, I'm 48 years old. For the majority of my life, I've had an incredibly unhealthy relationship with food. And it's so interesting to me because my perspective now on food is, and the, uh, the way I think we all should be looking at food is that food is something that nourishes us. It nourishes our body. It nourishes our mind. It nourishes our soul. Um, it makes us healthy biologically. It makes us healthy emotionally when we view it the right way and use it the right way but here i am at 48 and almost all of my life i've had this it, it, it's something that scared me and something that i viewed made me sick or or made me ugly or or made me made other kids make fun of me and um it was a very unhealthy way to live so i spent you know as a kid i was i was an overweight unhealthy kid um for most of my teen and early adult years i was an athlete and even though from the outside I looked healthy. You know, I was, I was muscular. I was lean. Mm. I still was not healthy on the inside, especially my gut and especially my relationship with food. I, I was a division one wrestler and that certainly has, um, has it comes with its own, um, uh, weird, uh, yeah. ways of thinking about food, mm. diet and health. And then as a, as an, as a, an adult, after I stopped becoming an athlete, all of uh, the weight came back on and I suffered from all sort of me- uh, metabolic disorders until I, um, I stopped asking this, this question, you know, what should I be eating? My entire life I've been asking, you know, what should I eat? What should I eat to be healthy? If you only, if somebody just told me exactly what I should eat, I would be healthy and I wouldn't look like this. and I wouldn't feel like this any longer. Um, and what I realized uh, through this ancestral lens, you know, as, as an archeologist and anthropologist, um, what I've learned is that even though that question is important, you're never going to get a complete answer. That's the only question you're asking that the, what, should I be eating should always be paired with how should I be eating? And I don't mean necessarily your portion size or you know, what times of the day to be eating. All of those things are important, but how should we be processing our food to make it as safe and nourishing as possible for our human bodies. And that is really the, um, the central focus of all of the work that I'm doing.
0: Yeah. I, I feel like, uh, we've lost our relationship with food a lot and, uh, um, obviously that can be attributed to just the almighty dollar and, how it's on every corner and it's so easy to, it's so accessible and easy to get. And I think it just has taken people away from, Oh, let's actually cook. And uh, I know that's something that you're, you're passionate about. And hopefully maybe through the whole quarantine and things like this, people maybe started cooking for themselves more. I don't know if you Mm -hmm. saw this. Um, I know uh, my wife and I have always cooked a lot for ourselves, but I mean, literally in the quarantine, I think (laughs) every night, we were making something different uh, just being at home and not going out to restaurants, you know, uh, can be a blessing.
1: Sure. And it, it was great. My, my family and I, we own, what's uh, now called the modern stone age kitchen, but it started as a, as a sourdough bakery we do much more in sourdough now, but what I've, I love to see during the, especially in this country, but not only this country, other countries as well. At the beginning of, of, of COVID, there was a huge yeast shortage. So people who were baking bread at home with their, um with yeasted breads and their and their bread makers and all realized that they couldn't make bread any longer with mm-hmm. commercial yeast so they started making sourdough which i loved mm-hmm. um i like the way that it rolled out was it it gave people that freedom, that freedom, that understanding that if I make, if I step back and make it one more step from scratch, Mm -hmm. I don't have to be so reliant on the industrial, you know, modern food system as much. Um, what I thought got missed in that, um, in that uh that trend was Mm. all the health benefits of sourdough because as soon as yeast started coming back onto the shelves and everybody not everybody but many of the people that were making sourdough bread then turned back to the yeasted breads and and missed uh, a little bit of that but yeah that and I also saw a huge um at least around here with some of the shortages that came in the meat industry because of um you know the meat packing and, and and all that there were a lot of people around me that were asking, you know, I was doing a lot of online butchering classes and even, believe it or not, even during COVID, it's an in-person butchering classes, which mm. helped people become less reliant on the packaged meat from the grocery store, which was difficult to get, and more reliant on local abattoirs and, and local butchers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and let's actually talk a little bit about sourdough bread something that now that I'm interviewing you again, I, I I want to make this with my wife. (laughs) I I don't, we don't eat a lot of, we don't really eat commercial bread at all. Um, but let's talk about the difference between like just commercial bread and, and how would you prepare like a sourdough bread?
1: Sure. And let me, and let me start off by saying too, I would never, I would never tell anyone who's not eating bread that they should start eating bread. Yeah. Um but <laughs> the message so I, and I think that message gets lost because we we make a massive quantity of sourdough bread here at the at the Age Kitchen and, and and truly nourish our community with it, but it's not a hey you should be eating bread if you're not. It's a hey if you're going to eat bread, right. this is the healthiest, safest, most nourishing version possible of it. This is the kind you should be eating. This is the kind you should be feeding your kids. So here here's the difference. If, if anybody's um um Ever made bread, or even if you've just made pancakes or muffins or cupcakes, uh, in order you take that flour and your finished product needs to not be this dense, you know, brick. It needs to have some kind of air on the inside of it for pleasure and for the mouthfeel and for all that. So we can leaven bread or raise the bread in a number of different ways, and it's been done in a number of different ways throughout history. Um, one way is. Through yeast, so you you have the yeast are you know trillions, billions, and trillions of these microorganisms that eat the carbohydrates, obviously the flour um, and the sugars that are in the dough, and produces carbon dioxide and alcohol as a byproduct. So the same yeast that you would use to make beer and wine, mm-hmm. you know, because it's making the alcohol in bread making, we're, we're allowing that. Uh, yes, producing alcohol that gets cooked off during the baking process. But the, um, the carbon dioxide that it produces, which is also in really good beer making, it's the same carbon dioxide that's used to carbonate the beer, also leavens the bread and, and makes it rise. Okay. Um, we can also use other le- leaveners like chemical leaveners, like baking soda and baking powder. And something um, original gingerbread was made with something called Hartshorn, which was made from ground up red beer antler in Germany and make these what we call ammonia cookies because they smell like ammonia but they were there's a chemical leavening process and then the other way to leaven dough is mechanically so there are some breads and there's some commercial breads that are leavened because they pump air into it or around here on the eastern shore there's a historic type of biscuit called a beaten biscuit where you just mix up flour water and salt you put it in a bag and you literally swing it over your shoulder and you hit a stump, you hit a stump repeatedly, you put it on the stump, you hit it with a sledgehammer. And what you're doing through that process is actually getting air into it. I've never made it, but I understand my old timers around here that have when you hit it and it makes a certain sound, you realize that you've pumped enough air into it and then you can bake these things off and they're, they're Mm -hmm. sort of leavened. But for everything I just mentioned, whether it's yeast or, uh, chemical leaveners or even if it's um, a heart shorn or even if it's beating the air into it the gluten that you start with is the gluten that you end with in the final product right and and the, and gluten and nuts and seeds and legumes all of those things have wrecked havoc in our bodies. None of there is no grain on the planet. There is no nut on the planet there is no bean on the planet there is none of that that is designed for us to get nutrition out of it. Those grains and nuts and seeds and legumes are all designed to actually, they're designed chemically and physically to pass through the digestive tracts of animals unharmed and land in a pile of manure on the other side um, and then grow and sprout new life. That's what they're designed for. There are some animals that have biologically figured out how to overcome those limitations, right? Or overcome those situations like granivorous birds, like ducks and geese, that have specialized mechanisms in their bodies to detoxify and break down physically and chemically those grains to make them safe and nourishing for them to eat. Mm. We don't have that. Taking a grain of wheat with all the lectins and anti-nutrients and and, and phytates and all the issues that it has with it, drying it and grinding it and leavening it and then eating it isn't the safest way for the human body to consume that bread. What, What we need to do is do something to it to get, you know, um, sort of neutralize or lessen the chemical warfare that they're engaging with uh, to to survive and produce new life Mm -hmm. and make it safe for our bodies. And the way that we do that several ways, but um, by tricking it and thinking that it can let its defenses down and support new life and and sprout is is one way. So soaking, sprouting, and fermenting are the ways that we can take and, and make those grains, nuts, and legumes safer for the human body to digest. Now... The earliest example of bread in the world is something like um, 12 to 14,000 years old. And for the entirety of time that there's been any type of bread being made, it all by default has been a sourdough type of bread. And let me explain the difference between sourdough and a regular yeasted bread that like you get at the grocery store. Yeasted bread relies upon yeast to produce carbon dioxide and alcohol, leavened bread. Sourdough bread relies upon yeast to do that but also has a second fermentation at the same time that's happening at the same time uh it's a lactic fermentation it's the same it's a it's made it uses lactobacillus bacteria that chemically and physically transforms the grains into their safest and most nourishing form possible for our bodies so at the same time that the yeast is is eating and 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 spitting out carbon dioxide and alcohol the lactobacillus bacteria are also operating and they are chemically and physically transforming the gluten or whatever other kind of grains you have in there, partially digesting them, breaking them down, helping neutralize some of the toxins that are in it um, and transforming it into something completely different. If you only have the lactic fermentation, the bread doesn't rise. If you only have the yeast fermentation, the bread doesn't become safe enough for us to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, the cool thing is the bacteria and yeast that we need for sourdough bread is literally in the air around us, it's on our skin, it's on those grains, we just have to harness them and allow them to do the work for us. And and it's it's incredibly easy, incredibly safe to do. Um, And the sourdough process, like I said, takes something that has no business being in our bodies and transforms it into something that I would very easily make the argument to say that that can be a part of a healthy human diet if you're processing those grains in, in, in the proper way. The problem is, to do it right, you either have to go to a real bakery mm-hmm. or do it yourself at home, because there is no FDA regulation that uh, defines what we call sourdough. And m- almost all of the bread you would find in, in a major grocery store, a big box store that says sourdough on it, is actually not sourdough. It has not gone through that process. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the label, all they've done is they've taken that... Um, idea, which is a false idea, but that idea that a sourdough should taste a little bit sour. It doesn't have to, but they've taken that idea and they've taken a yeasted bread. They've added an acid to it, like a citric acid or a lactic acid or acetic acid, which is vinegar, added a little bit to a regular yeasted bread to give it a little tang and then called it sourdough. And health-wise, it is the same as eating a loaf of Wonder
0: Bread. Yeah. Yeah. So the commercial sourdough bread, um, and is probably not what you want to get. You got to make it yourself.
1: <laughs> you got to make it yourself. Yeah. Or if you have a local bakery where you trust the baker and they're doing it the right way, that's the way to do it. Same thing goes at a restaurant. If you go to a restaurant and say, Hey, you know, it's a, it's a burger restaurant. And they say, Hey, we have sourdough rolls. Most of them are getting the sourdough rolls from a food supplier somewhere. That's also doing the same exact thing. So it's, 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 you have to, you have to do it yourself and it's incredibly easy and rewarding to do.
0: And what about, let's talk a little bit about sprouting and soaking. Like I buy this uh, high quality almond butter and with that's completely sprouted. And, um, uh, I think it's high quality and, 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 you know, like, like we talked about better for your, for your gut and digestion, um, what, what would you say some of the reasons of sprouting and soaking and fermenting that, that you know I'm, I'm sure you saw when you visited the tribes and things like that, that they did as well? Uh, is that just to help with digestion or to try to get more nutrients out of that?
1: It, it's, a, it's a little bit of both, right? Yeah. So um, if you see, and this, this is across the board, right? Um, I have never found a group, an ancestral traditional group that I've worked with, or even looked at historical references of using nuts, grains, legumes, those sorts of things, which are, all, which are literally all the same thing for a plant, right? They, they're, they're, they're there to do the same thing, support new life. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember, to, to reiterate, plants don't move. So they right. have to protect themselves through predation. They protect themselves from insects, from fungus, from disease, from predation through chemical warfare. So they produce chemicals that allow those seeds, the most important part of that plant. I mean, that's their young, that's their babies to stay dormant until they're in the right environment to uh, then sprout and and become new life. And all these, these anti-nutrients, these, these toxins that are there in and around those seeds and legumes and nuts are there for that reason. And when you trick it into when it's in the right environment to support new life, it lets down those defenses. There are chemical reactions that happen that make them a lot safer for us to consume at that point. So, if you think about it, the right environment for a seed in that a legume is a warm, moist environment. That's when it's going to sprout, that's when it's going to support new life. So, fermentation, soaking, sprouting are all different ways of, of getting at it. Now, um, sprouting is fantastic. Sprouting helps with many of those toxins, many of those anti-nutrients, it, none of them totally get rid of all of it. Right. Um, and, and so for an example, a toxin that, that I am, um, always thinking about, um, and there's some experts, people like Sally Norton that have, have spent, uh, their entire career working on, um, are things like oxalates. Now oxalates are plant toxins that we I haven't found a good strategy to completely get rid of them yet. Even soaking and sprouting doesn't do it. And unfortunately, nuts are very, very, very high in oxalates, including almonds. So while soaking an almond can help with a lot of the issues, soaking, it doesn't get rid of, of the oxalate. So in cases where you have a high oxalate food, like almonds, spinach um, are, are two great examples. Yeah. That's something that you would want to pay attention to how much of it you're eating. Um, again, not that you shouldn't eat any of it, but it isn't right. the kind of thing that a, a, an almond, an almond shake, you know, an almond milk spinach shake is not the kind of thing you want to eat every day for <laughs> breakfast, right? You can cause all sorts of issues,
0: Right. And and a lot of people think that's healthy, right? And throw some kale in there too. Kale's high in oxalates as well, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's rhubarb, uh, sesame seeds are incredibly high, you know, some, and, and again, these things that we, we sprinkle them on roll none of those things by themselves are a huge issue. Um, even spinach, but we've changed, we've modified, we talked about connection earlier. We, we are so disconnected from our food today. Many of us are, you know, we're not growing our food or raising our animals or, or, you know, being forced through those mechanisms to eat seasonally and, 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 and understand the life cycle of plants and animals and these sorts of things that, um, are are the cues, the things that would normally teach us how we should be eating or restricting us to eating in a certain way are no longer in place. And, you know, spinach is, if you grew spinach in the ground outside, not in the hoop house, not in the greenhouse, Mm. but on the ground outside, you'd have, I don't know what, Two weeks of spinach that you could eat, mm-hmm. and if you ate spinach for two weeks out of the year, no big deal. But now mm-hmm. we've listened to a cartoon in the nineteen sixties and seventies about this being a health food, and we're growing it all over the world, and we're we're freezing it, shipping it. Now we we, we consider it a, a superfood, and you can eat it every single day of the year. Right. And we've created a problem that was never a problem before. And real the other um, you, know, you mentioned almonds. Almond milk has become quite a problem in many parts of the world as well. There was just a study that came out, um, I believe it was in Chicago, for the first time ever, children under the age of 10 years old are presenting with kidney stones. And it's happening in families um, that are raising their kids vegan, and kids are drinking the same amount of almond milk as they normally would be drinking from cow's milk and creating, again, a situation we've never before seen in our species.
0: Yeah, and what about the problem with almonds and the amount of water that they yeah. that they use? I I've, I remember reading about that. Um, I think I think it was something something crazy. I, I don't know, and I don't know if you know the stats on like how much like water it takes to just make one almond. It's it's quite um, it's amazing, um, and most of them are grown, I think, in California for the most part. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right. Like they like spinach, like you mentioned. We actually have a little bit of garden and my wife likes tomatoes and, you know, tomatoes, again, a nightshade, um, and high in probably some anti-nutrients, right. Um, mm-hmm. but if, again, if you're having them for just, uh, a seasonal part of the year and making it and growing it yourself, no, no harm for the most part, unless you're really sensitive to them. But if you're, like you said, commercially, if you're having them all year round, that's when the issue can come.
1: And, th- and think about this with, with nuts as well. Um, if, if we've taken those mechanisms away in, in, in for what we call convenience, right, um, we've taken the mechanisms that helped us eat incredibly healthy diets away, something as simple as shelling nuts for us. You know, if, if I I remember as a kid, I'd go to my grandparents' house and there'd be a little bowl of mixed nuts and a little nutcracker and you'd sit there and then mm-hmm. I could spend 20 minutes cracking a walnut and an almond and a Brazil nut and I would eat seven nuts right, or six nuts. You but had now to work for it. we can reach it. into a bag right. and grab handfuls of nuts and we can get it at BJ's for a really good price. And that mechanism that restricted the amount of nuts that we were eating, you know, nuts at a, at a low level, especially if they're soaked or sprouted. No big deal. Good. They, they do. They do certainly deliver nutrition. They certainly deliver some bad things as well. But those bad things are limited. When we have, I mean, imagine if you had to collect the nuts, dry the nuts, crack the roast the nuts, crack the nuts, and then eat the nuts. And now right. we can drink a quart of almond milk for two dollars at vj's and all of a sudden we have all these problems we never had before. Yeah. And, but it's all about that connection you mentioned earlier. We we're, we're we're getting so far removed that those mechanisms are no longer there. So we have to to think about some of these things more than ever.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. And I always say like, sometimes my wife likes pistachios. We never buy the ones that are not in the shell because right. Like we buy the ones in the shell, you know, organic, you know, even though, you know, um, you got to work for it a little bit, right. Got to work for it. Sure. <laughs> uh, so let's also talk. I, I know that you've, you've traveled all over and we touched on it. The first time we, we spoke, um, back, but it's been a year ago is, Um, I, I I love touching back on the tribals and the tribes and what you learned from like, um, uh, you know, like the Saburu warriors are, you know, the, the Highlanders, what were some of the things that you learned? I know, I know you drank blood. Uh, I'd just be curious to know, um, is there anything else that, that sort of stuck out when you, when you visited those tribes?
1: Yeah, the, a couple things. Fermentation was at any, like I mentioned here, any traditional or ancestral group that I've, I've went and spent time with or lived with, learned from, ate with, cooked with, uh, shared food with, fermentation was at the core of all of their diets. And it wasn't just fermented vegetables like sauerkraut, Although those sorts of things certainly do exist. Um, fermentation was, was always present. Um, the Samburu and the Maasai are the only, and these nomadic pastoralists, are the only two traditional groups I know of that fermented, that had dairy in their diets, that fermented dairy is Mm. the core of it, right? Um, So a great example is in Mongolia, I spend a lot of time in Mongolia. Um, Dairy is at the central core of their food. um, And it's everything from camel milk, to yak milk, to horse milk, to sheep milk, I mean, across the board, goat milk. Um, but it's always fermented. And it's fascinating because we, we tend, when you think about something like lactose intolerance, um, many of us view lactose intolerance as this weird thing, that ha- weird thing that happens to some humans. In fact, it's the exact opposite. 60% of modern humans right now are lactose intolerant. Um, 40, 40% are lactose tolerant. It is common for mammals to become lactose intolerant after uh, we're weaned off our mothers. And that goes for a, for a cow to a human. And what happens is when we get weaned off our mothers, we, we stop or, uh, or slow the production of lactase, the enzyme that, that breaks down the sugar's lactose, we become lactose intolerant. Right. We as mammals don't need it anymore in the world, but humans have this interesting thing that we as adults consume dairy from, from other animals. And what's happened is that there's been a few gen- independent genetic mutations, mostly in Africa and in Europe, Uh, where populations subsisted on dairy for a long period of time into adulthood, where they continue to produce lactose, uh, that enzyme as adults. That's the weird thing. The weird thing is that we've been able to produce lactose uh, into adulthood and consume milk as adults safely. So those of us, but it it depends on where you live and uh, your, you know, sort of your genetic past Mm. would help determine whether or not you're lactose tolerant or intolerant. So for example, um, in North America, Native Americans have almost 100% lactose intolerance. They've never, um, throughout time, been in a situation where they were consuming dairy from other animals into adulthood, never um, you know, created that that genetic mutation that allowed them as adults to continue to produce that enzyme lactose. Whereas in Ireland, it's the exact opposite. In Ireland, there's almost 100% lactose tolerance into adults. And that really speaks to the long history they've had with dairy. But here's the crazy thing with Mongolia. In Mongolia, um, where dairy is central to their diets, they still, they have a very low lactose tolerance um, hmm. in, in adults. And the reason is because they are always fermenting their dairy. And when you ferment the dairy, just like when you're fermenting sourdough bread and the lactobacillus bacteria are eating the sugars and eating the carbohydrates, the lactobacillus bacteria in a dairy ferment, and I mean dairy ferment things like yogurt or kefir or um, uh, cheese, real traditional cheese, the lactobacillus bacteria eats the sugars in the milk, the lactose right? And, and I'm sorry, when I was saying the enzyme meant lactase, but it, it, it eats the, it eats the lactose sugar. So a fully fermented dairy um, product or dairy food has very little or zero lactose in it. So you, since you're, it, it doesn't matter if your body's not producing the enzyme lactase, you don't need it because the final product doesn't have it in it. Plus in, in real live fermented dairy products, you are actually getting some of that enzyme when, when, you're, when you're consuming it. So you're getting some of that lactase, that enzyme into your body, and it can help you digest any, any of the stuff that, that's left. And that really speaks to the, to the role of, of food processing. Because if you just looked at it from the outside of view, it said, oh, they're eating dairy uh, there and they're eating dairy here and they're eating dairy here and they have problems here and don't have problems there you're not really getting at the root of the problem. It's not dairy. That's not the the what, it's the how. It's fermenting the dairy make it makes the big difference.
0: So is that something that you incorporate in, in your diet? Do you ferment your dairy?
1: Absolutely. Now, I, I will say um, my kids' their entire life, uh, my oldest is 18 years old. They have gone straight from breast milk to raw dairy. They're, they've been on raw dairy their entire lives, which was a huge, huge struggle for me because in uh we lived in new jersey and we've lived in maryland and in both states raw dairy is is very illegal um so we had to travel quite a bit to get or get it from local sources that we shouldn't have (laughs) um legally but uh we've they've been on raw dairy their whole lives uh but more importantly so high quality raw dairy but more importantly um Drinking a glass of milk wasn't a common thing in our house. And it's not a common thing historically or prehistorically as well. That's a really weird thing. All the dairy that almost all the dairy we consumed in our house always and still continue to has been fermented. So cultured butter, uh, kefir, yogurt, real cheeses, those sorts of things.
0: So the fermented dairy that's on the market, like if you go to Whole Foods, you would say that would be something that would be okay to eat. Or... It'd be
1: much better. So <laughs> again, we get back to the, sour, it's like the sourdough thing.
0: It'd if you much, have the time
1: yeah. if you have the time or the inkling to do it, it'd be much better to do it in your own home because you have control over what the, the, the source of that dairy and that you're actually doing a really good job of the fermentation. But high quality yogurts, high quality kefirs, high quality real cheeses, high quality cultured butter, those foods you can buy and the commercial versions of them is a lot better than drinking a glass of milk. One
0: hundred percent. Now, when you get your raw dairy, you're you're just drinking it straight, right? Are you? Are you? You don't need the, Are you fermenting it too?
1: No, we're still fermenting it. Oh, and okay. let me let me tell you why. When we humans don't have a very efficient digestive tract whatsoever, um, and we have to work very hard to take these foods that we're not designed to eat, whether it's a grain or whether it's dairy or a whole host of other things I can mention that we're not designed to eat and we have to process it properly to get it ready for our bodies so that we can Mm -hmm. safely and fully get all the nutrition it has to, um, to provide to us. Um, most of the time we're mimicking what happens in another animal's digestive tract. So if we're fermenting or soaking grains or spread that's happening inside of things like ducks and geese that are, um, naturally designed to consume grains,
0: um,
1: dairy, we have to mimic, I fully believe we. The only, let me back up. I'm sorry. The only food, the only perfect food for humans, the only food that we're entirely perfectly designed to consume. Let me guess. As a species, is <laughs> is what is dairy, and and that's really? only only. That's the only perfect, that's the only perfect food for humans, but that's only for a short period of our, of our life, right? Right, we're, right? We're only designed to consume it when we're infants, when we get weaned off of that dairy. I mean, that's what defines us. I mean, we're mammals, that's what we do. But when we uh, start to, when we get weaned off of milk, our, we, we biologically change and we're not producing the same enzymes, things like lactase that allow us to safely consume that dairy any longer. What we need to do, I'm convinced, what we need to do as adult humans, if we want to consume dairy, is to consume it, to process it outside of our bodies the way that it was processed inside of our bodies to get it ready for the rest of our digestive tract. So when right. we drank milk as an infant, this is how it works. We you know, drink from our mothers, that is raw, completely alive milk, full of beneficial bacteria already in the process of fermenting when it's going into our mouths. It mm-hmm. goes into our, into our stomachs, into our guts, and it gets hit mm-hmm. with several different enzymes that we naturally produce. Lipase, which breaks down fat. Um, chymosin, which coagulates – or chymosin like enzyme, which coagulates the milk. And lactase, which breaks down the sugars. And we coagulate the milk in order to slow it down in our digestive tract so it can chemically and physically break down fully
0: mm-hmm.
1: and ferment before it goes into our small intestines where, that, uh, where we absorb all the nutrients from it. So what we're essentially doing as infants, that chymosin like enzyme in the cheesemaking world is known as rennet. And, and that's exactly where we get rennet to make cheese. We get it from the unweaned stomachs of um, the stomachs of unweaned animals like calves, for example, where they're naturally still producing this enzyme. That's where we create curds. And, and and the byproduct mm. way, so if you're taking if we're fermenting that dairy before we consume it, we're and especially if we're fermenting it and then we're coagulating it and we're making real high quality cheeses, that's exactly what we did as infants as humans. So we are not designed, we never have been designed to drink glasses of milk or put it on our cereal and eat it like this. But we can mimic that original process when we were infants by fermenting the milk. And then consuming it. And for most adult humans, if it's from a high quality source and it's been fermented, we can get a high quality nutrition from that milk.
0: So the question is, so we can, I live in Illinois, right? I can, there's a farm maybe 45 minutes away and I, I, I definitely want to get some raw dairy. So, so in, a, in sort of a short version, how would, how would we ferment that?
1: Okay. If you so remember this, if the 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 bacteria that allow the back you know, this is all the, all these fermentation relationships, these biological symbiotic relationships that have these uh, have formed over millions of years, right? Mm-hmm. The bacteria that's in that milk, the beneficial bacteria, are designed. They have been designed through selective pressures over millions of years to operate at body temperature. But that's that's where they operate best because like, it makes sense it's in your mother's breast it's going into you as a baby right. um, whether you're a cow or a calf or a human it, it, it that's that's where they operate um the bad stuff operates outside of those outside of those temperature ranges mm. so the best way to ferment high quality and i will say raw milk
0: Needs to be there's good raw fed. milk and
1: there's bad raw milk, right? right? So yeah. high quality, fresh raw milk dairy. The best way to ferment it is to get it directly from the animal and never let it cool down. It's already in the process of fermenting. Keep it at room temperature, and it will actually by itself turn into something called clabber. Clabber, um, it's a European term for just milk that's fermented for 24, 48 hours. Um, it is actually it'll turn into like a yogurt-like substance. The problem mm. is, um and it's great. It's full of bacteria, uh, good bacteria, full of enzymes, full of amazing nutrition. The problem is it's almost impossible unless you own your own cow or right. goat to, um, to get that. So what you're going to do is you're going to get milk that uh, was in the process of fermenting, that they've chilled down rapidly to, to meet all the laws and regulations. And the first thing you have to do is to warm it back up to the temperature range that the good bacteria will operate it. The problem, and this is going to sound anti, this is going to sound like the exact opposite of what everybody thinks about milk. When you take that milk full of beneficial bacteria that's designed to operate at body temperature and ferment, do its job, and cool it down below forty-two degrees, which is where our, our refrigerators operate, um, we've slowed down the uh, any any the life of all of the good bacteria. And now we're in a situation where, yeah, everything's slowed down and that milk will last longer, but bacteria that operate at other temperatures, like lower temperatures, now start to dominate the kind of pool of all the bacteria that's, that's in there. So even though, again, that milk would last for a while, um, you're changing the populations of, of good and bad bacteria. So if that, milk has, if that milk has come out of a healthiest cow ever on an amazing farm and it's raw and it's been chilled down and it's sat in the fridge for three days... And then now you bring it up to room temperature, you've changed the populations of those bacteria. While it, it may work, the best thing you can do at that point is add some, bac- some really good, powerful bacteria into it to make sure your fermentation is going to happen operate properly. So that's where you would add maybe yogurt um, into it because you know that, bac- that the yogurt bacteria is, is full, of, uh, full of really good stuff. Or you could add fresh kefir or... If you have access to cheese-making cultures that are full of those bacteria, you can add those in. But really, the the only thing you have to do, the short version of this, is get your milk to the right temperature, which is room temperature, which body temperature, you know, somewhere in that range, and make sure either the bacteria that are in there are thriving. And if not, you add some bacteria to it, clobber, yogurt, kefir, a cheese-making culture, any of these things um, would, would allow it to start fermenting.
0: Okay. <laughs> I think I got that, but that does make sense that with the raw dairy that you want to have it at, you know, like your, your own temperature, your body temperature. Um, once you get it cold or too hot, then you're obviously killing some of that good bacteria off or you're sort of s- right. changing the way of its natural state.
1: And and again, I know there was a long answer to yeah. a simple, seemingly simple question, but, and, and it might scare people off. But the reality is we have been fermenting dairy for at least eight thousand years. At least eight thousand years with no thermometer, with no stainless steel pots, with no refrigeration. Very easy. It's very easy to safely do it as long as you understand some of the basic mechanics of it to make your own yogurt, kefir,
0: cheese, all of it. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I got to give that a go. I'll give that. I'm to go first before I do the sourdough bread because.
1: <laughs> okay, that's
0: good. Yeah, more nutrition and dairy. Uh, but yeah, it's funny. Dairy is like one of those topics. I have so many people on my podcast and we talk, you got certain people are so against it. Some people are, you know, more for it, you know, depending on where, you know, what type of diet they have. I mean, like you said, I mean, I think it depends on where you're getting it from. Uh, but mainly commercial dairy is a no, no, unless, you know, um, you're getting a really high quality, like you meant like a, a dairy that's fermented. Right. Um, so to move on from that why don't we talk about some cornerstones of a healthy diet? Maybe some things that individuals could could hear that uh, maybe they could change in their diet right away or ways that they can prepare foods that will make them you know better off coming into the new year since we are getting to the end of the year.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. So yeah. you know, the first thing, I think one of the most important things that we can do and the easiest thing that we can do and make a, make a change like within the next 15 minutes is go directly to your cupboard or your cabinet or wherever. You keep your food supplies and get rid of every single industrial nut and seed oil in your house, period, There's bar none. Um, so corn oil, soybean oil, um, any of those. Can uh, you still
0: buy that? No. <laughs> I think you, yeah. you can.
1: So you, can anything you that says vegetable oil, uh, okay. um, sesame oil, all, all those oils should go. Um, The only oils that we have in our house and here at the Montes Aid's Kitchen are, um, and when I say oil, and I know this is one of those terms we use all the time, but many people might not understand where the distinction is. The distinction between what we call oil and what we would call say fat is oil is liquid at room temperature and fat like butter, lard, tallow is usually solid at room temperature. So um, the only oils that we have at all are avocado and olive oil, which are not nut oils, they're both fruit oils. And the reason we have those is first of all, they have a much longer history, especially the olive oil in our in our diets than any industrial cottonseed oil or any of the other things. But um, they give up their fat, their lipids incredibly easy, they don't need a lot of pressure, they don't need chemicals, they don't need any of those things to give up their fat. So um, it's not a huge industrial process that's already screwed it all up before we have access to it. And the other, the only nut oil that we use is coconut oil. Um, and the same thing, it, even though it's considered a nut, it gives up its fat so incredibly easy that we don't need any of the high dollar machines and all this to do it uh, and, and the chemical processes. However, in all of those cases, um, we should be very careful about heating them up. You know, cooking with a little bit of olive oil may not be a very big deal, but I would never fry in olive oil. I would never heat it up to a very high temperature. It'll break down way too easy. So get rid of all your industrial nut and seed oils, maybe keep some olive oil, some avocado oil, coconut oil around for cold applications like dressings and mayonnaise and those sorts of things. And rely almost solely on high quality animal fats like butter, lard tallow schmaltz which is poultry fat um those those are the fat that's schmaltz. The
0: fir- yeah that's the first time i've heard that <laughs> really
1: so uh you know for, i like it, that you know, anybody who has um, a jewish grandmother yeah. talk to her she knows what schmaltz is they usually have some next to the stove it's a I yiddish word right <laughs> it is i yeah. understand that all cakes the best cakes in the world where, uh, the fat that you put in the cake is is chicken fat or schmaltz, but it, whether okay. it's from a duck or a turkey, keep it. It's amazing. And in fact, if you if you're frying eggs, fry an egg in chicken fat. I know it sounds a little bit strange, mm. but it's amazing. Um, all of our all of our high temperature cooking is done with high quality animal fats. Save it. I mean, whether it comes off the bacon or it comes off your roast or whether you skim it off if you're making bone broth and it's it's the marrow and the bone grease and the fat that's all together there. That stuff is amazing. Um, So number one, change in fats, especially if you have kids or young children at home, um, you know, they their brains are starving for high quality fat. And if the only thing we're feeding them is these industrial nutter seed oils, then um, we're wrecking havoc on their young bodies. That's number one. Number two, um, you just take a strong stance. We have in our house at the Modern Stone Age Kitchen against uh, refined sugars. I realize I was very dogmatic as, as a father, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a husband several years ago, and we got rid of every every sweetener in the house it was an entire year that we made every food that we ate entirely from scratch. Most of the vegetables we ate were foraged. Almost all the food we ate, all the meat we ate, was wild and killed uh, by us and butchered at home. And while it was an amazing year for me to learn, my and biologically my family, I believe, was incredibly healthy that year. Emotionally, we were a wreck. I mean, the, the amount of stress that was in that house around food and what we we're going to eat, it was it was crazy. And I've backed off a lot on on certain things and where I think I should have. And one of them is an understanding that uh, in in our modern world, um, true health comes from both a combination of biological health through, through food and emotional cultural health through food. And they're, and they're really intertwined and there can be a place in a healthy human diet. I fully believe this where sweeteners are used in moderation but here's, here's, here's the way we picture it in our house. There is no biological need for sugar in a human. There's none. There's an emotional need, but there's not a biological mm, need. Right. So if we're going to include sugar at all in our diet, we might as well, this is what I believe, we might as well get something else with it, whether it's minerals mm-hmm. or enzymes or something and high quality raw honey, high quality maple syrup unrefined sugars like muscovado which is one we we rely on um can deliver not only the sweetness we want and some flavors that we really like but also some other things that do provide some some health benefits so again we shouldn't be drinking a half a cup of maple syrup a day but if we include it in something it's much better alternative than, than refined white sugar and and if you're going to use sugar itself do a little bit of research you know, brown sugar is junk brown sugar the domino brown sugar in the grocery store is not an unrefined version of white sugar in fact it's even more processed than white sugar because in almost all cases for brown sugar they've completely refined it down to white sugar and then added back a little bit of molasses into it to turn it into what we call brown sugar and then put it onto a shelf (laughs) so number one is the fats number two is the sweeteners and number three now this is kind of a catch-all phrase. and It's going to sound a little bit daunting, but I fully believe this.
0: Wait before this, oh, I was, <laughs> before good. you say this, my one question was: you see a lot now with stevia. What are your mm. thoughts? Yeah, what are your thoughts on stevia, or you know, even some of um um like xylitol things like that?
1: I I have a little bit of an apprehension about it because and I, and listen, I will be completely honest. I don't know enough about stevia xylitol any of those any of those sorts of things to you know the monk's fruit fruit extract, it could some of it could be absolutely fine i and this is this goes into the third one a little bit but i tend to believe that if it's something that i don't have the ability to make myself mm. in my house with the base most basic of tools then it shouldn't go into our bodies. Now, not like I'm um, processing sugar, but the, right. the kind of process that you would go through to get maple, we've made maple syrup. We've actually you know, collected honey from beehives. We could get sugar cane and get down to the state that Muscovado sugar is in our house with basic equipment. Getting stevia, getting some of these other things, it just seems so foreign that and, and so disconnected that, I have a little bit of apprehension about it. But again, that, that comes from an uninformed place, but if I don't, if it's it something that sense. I can't do myself, that
0: makes sense. And honey, honey is something I'm seeing, uh, get talked about a little bit in like the carnivore world. I know like Paul said, you know, was talking about adding that back into his diet. Cause it's not toxic. And, um, obviously some tribes did use honey a lot. Is that correct? Or not a lot, but you know, from time to time.
1: Absolutely. And there's, there's some suggestion that honey has been in our diet for between two and two and a half million years, um, there's a, there's some uh, archaeological evidence that suggests it. And Paul was just with the Hadza. I was with the same group um, years ago, and we both collected honey with the Hadza. It's something that they the, the Hadza are the oldest hunter gatherer group in the world, um, still in existence. And they love honey. They don't get it that often, but when they get it, they absolutely love it. And when they eat it, they're eating. <laughs> And when we collected, luckily in Tanzania, where the Hadza live, there's stingless bees. So they can collect this honey from these stingless bees and, right. and not get stung at all. Um, when they collect it, it's not like they're taking honey and squeezing it out of the plastic bear. right on the thing. They're getting the honey, they're getting the propolis, they're getting the uh, honeycomb. They're getting all of these things together at the same time, which is a much different food than refined honey coming from the grocery store.
0: Okay. Yeah. And that could be a good alternative for a lot of people um, because there's some good quality honeys you can get out there. Um,
1: Absolutely. And the nice thing to remember, if you're going to start substituting um, some of your normal baking or or cooking with some of these more unrefined versions, um, if it's something like a muscovado sugar or even maple syrup, it has the same sweetness as as a refined sugar. So you can um, substitute it one to one honey is actually sweeter than white table, you know, white, regular domino sugar. So if you're going to substitute honey, actually back off a little bit on it, it it may make things a little bit too sweet. And I know that's a little bit, you know, we (laughs) think about all my guys honey, but no, it's actually sweeter than sugar.
0: Yeah. And uh, so what was your third? uh,
1: The third one is basically it's connect And, and, and connect with your food. And by doing so, you will give yourself the best education about food and, and your diet and your health. And you, you could ever get from a podcast or a book or a, or, or, or a documentary or anything. So this is, here's some suggestions. So number one uh, from that um, connection levels to where your food comes from. Some of these may sound so foreign, but do them. They're ex- more accessible than you think forage fish, if you have access to and I don't mean you have to all of a sudden go out and and, and spend four thousand dollars on camouflage and buy a gun and go hunting every day Mm -hmm. go hunting with somebody just sit in the stand with them for a day and see what it's like for the woods to come alive and you know to to understand what a, a real um ethical hunter actually does or go listen I have run foraging tours all over the world I have foraged through Moscow, through Dublin, through New York City, through Washington, D.C. You don't have to live in the middle of the woods to forage and get that, you know, understand where you can pick maybe some dandelions. Forage, go fishing, collect some shellfish. If you Any of those sorts of things, you know, are ways that we accessed food for millions of years that most of us don't believe we have access to, but, but we do. And even if you do it, once a season or even once a year, it, it, it reminds you of that connection, that seasonality, that localness of food that's incredibly important. Um, farmers markets go and this may sound incredibly strange, but go if you have access to a local butcher, go to the butcher shop and bring your kids. Right. We, we don't have in our in our kitchens any longer. We don't have bones. We don't have skin. We don't have feathers. We don't have hair. We don't have feet. We don't have any of those things. We have packaged chicken breasts and we wonder why our, our kids can't make the connection between that animal that's running around and what's on their plate. And when, when we miss that, we're missing respect and control over our food system that we really need to get back to. I, am in, I, I truly believe that the healthiest human diet includes animals completely nose to tail, approaches to animals, um, but I reject the modern industrial meat industry, um, which you can easily do both of those things at the same time. So connect yourself and your kids back with where their animals are coming from. Um, shop and buy you know—buy the largest, not the largest cut of meat, the largest part of an animal you can get. Get a whole chicken, get a shoulder of, of, of a pig and break that down. And, and, and it sounds again, strange, but even that sound, even if your kids are watching TV in the other room and, you're, and, and you've are and you brought something home that resembles an arm and they hear your knife scraping against the bone, I mean, these are sounds that most modern American kitchens don't have in them any longer. It's sights like they don't have in them any longer. And most of us, again, think that this is some sort of convenience and we don't have to bother ourselves with these things anymore. But it comes at a huge cost and bring that stuff back into the kitchen. But And then... Really a a huge, a huge thing that I I recommend a lot is take the foods that you and your family eat all the time, not your Thanksgiving dinner, not your Christmas dinner, not your Sunday dinner, the foods that you guys eat every day and pick one of those meals and cook it entirely from scratch Mm -hmm. one time. Yeah. And by doing so, even if you screw it up and it's inedible and the dog won't even eat it, <laughs> you have learned more about that food than you'll ever learn from a book or anywhere else. And even if you always buy it from that point forward, you can go to the grocery store and, and, and look through all the marketing and all the advertising, find the right version of that food, the best version possible for you, your family, the environment, for the animals, for all of it. And not only are you bringing that food home, and serving it to your family but you're also using your money to support those food producers that are doing the best job possible that's the kind of connection that we need and that is um i think we'll will we'll catapult you light years uh, ahead in trying to nourish your family
0: yeah i love that and um to summarize uh, avoid refined sugar and industrial seed oils, right? And then connect mm-hmm. with your food. <laughs> Perfect. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, before we finish up here, I know, you know, maybe let people know where they can find your book. I'm assuming Amazon, but uh, eat like a human nourishing foods and ancient ways of cooking to revolutionize your health.
1: Absolutely. So I'm so excited. I literally last night, the box of books came. This has been 10 years of uh, it, of writing and the entire family involved in producing this book. And what we've done in this book is um, I realized that the way I've learned to feed my family has been incredibly valuable to our family. And we just wanted to share it with the world, our approach to food, our outlook on, on our relationship between humans and the world around us. And most importantly, how to take those messages and, uh, make them work into something. What are the takeaways right. from that? Recipes and tips and tricks. So the, the beginning of the book is a, sort of a, a cursory, but in depth at the same time, look at our ancestral dietary past over millions of years. And then the book is broken down into sections, plants, animals, grains, maize, dairy, you know, and, and so on. And there's a little bit of history and, and stories in each one of these chapters, stories about groups that we've we've lived with and learned from around the world. Mm. And then uh, there's takeaways in every single chapter, recipes and tips and real world takeaways that you can apply in your kitchen. Um, it teaches you how to make sourdough bread. It teaches you how to make cheese. It teaches you how to nixtamalize maize, how to do basic butchering and those sorts of things, how to use the entire animal. Um, the book uh, it launch, or releases on November 16th and it's available in all major um, uh, book outlets, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, this is great. And I think this is something that the world needs because like you mentioned, you know, when you, we've just, like we talked about in the beginning, we've just lost our connection with how important food is and how food can, you know, you hear it all the time, but food can heal. And, um, when you really get to the root of it and you learn some of the basic techniques that you teach, I'm sure in the book, uh, it's a great, great way to just take those small steps to, you know, put you ahead of where you, you know, how you've done things in the past and and can, like you mentioned, revolutionize your health.
1: Absolutely. Yep. So, and I'm, again, I'm so excited because it is it is accessible. It, it is recipes and tips that you can do in your own kitchen, whether you're in a, a flat in, in New York City or in a house in the middle of Kansas, right? It, it's it's across the board, incredibly accessible.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I I am definitely going to order it and read it Um, because I want to, I want some of those recipes and, uh, yeah, I think, uh, the more, the more we cook at home, I think that's such like a, like you can bring your health back just from that, avoid going out to restaurants where they're using these seed oils and cook for yourself. And that can be a, uh, make, take a big step to getting your health back. 100%. All right, Bill. Well, this was great. A lot of great different topics and, um, I'm looking forward to the book. So I appreciate you coming on.
1: Hey, great. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me again.
0: Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, e Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.